Hello and welcome to Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia. In this episode, we will be discussing special education law, IEPs, 504 plans, and other um, provisions for special needs children. We start everything, everyone's favorite part of the podcast, our disclaimer, Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm, and we provide legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All the information presented is current as of the time this podcast is published. This podcast is scheduled to be broadcast on August of 2022, and information will be up to date as of that time. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates to the laws in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes only. While our host and guests are attorneys, the uh, information presented is legal information and does not take the place of an attorney-client privilege. Uh, You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As noted, I'm Clint Adams. I'm your host. And today we are joined by Patricia DeFranco. Uh, Patricia is an attorney. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And you work in which office at Legal Aid of West Virginia? Uh, I work out of our Beckley office, but I covered the entire state through my grant program. Okay, so your home office is in in the Beckley office, but you still run a, a statewide practice? Yes, that is correct. And uh, what's something that's fun to do around the Beckley area? Part of the reason I live in this area is uh, for some of the outdoor activities. I enjoy hiking and rock climbing and mountain biking. And where do you uh, most like to hike and rock climb and mountain climb? Uh, In the the New River Gorge. Okay. It's beautiful down there, and that's a beautiful bridge. Um, I recently learned you can actually go underneath of the bridge, but I haven't had the, the guts to do that yet. Have you? Yes. Yeah, I actually did it with my family and my brother, who's a an engineer, was fascinated. Um, so we did do that, the bridge walk underneath the bridge. It was really neat. And you can see really far down the river and really get a good sense of how large the bridge is. So I would highly recommend checking it out if that's something that you'd be interested in and you're not too afraid of heights. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. If you're not too afraid of heights, so let's talk about the work that you do in the Beckley office. Uh, what is your job there, and how did you get there? My job is the our Fast program, which provides advocacy and support for families and children who need special education and related services. Um, and I'm the attorney for the Fast program. So Fast is an acronym. What does that stand for? FAST stands for Family Advocacy Support and Training. So those are our, the goals of our program are to provide advocacy support and training to families. Okay, and what do you do as an attorney there? The main part of my job, there's a couple different things I do. We have family advocates that go into the schools and advocate for children to obtain special education services. Um, or related services through like a 504 plan or an an IEP, an individualized education plan, which I think we're going to be talking about a little bit more later. So I work with our family advocates and kind of provide them assistance and guidance. And then I also, if um, we need to file what's called a due process complaint, that's something that would come across my desk and I would work to file that. Now let's talk about, you mentioned 504 plans. What is a 504 plan? 
So a student that has a disability and or suspected disability and they need accommodations or some other type of related aids or services to participate in and or benefit from their education. Okay, so does that mean if they have like uh, ADD or does that mean like if they're in a wheelchair or both of those are apply are applicable there? Yes, both of those would could a child that has either has a wheelchair or has ADHD or a different um, like mental health diagnosis, both of those children might need a 504 plan if, if they need something to assist them in order to access education. So where do we get this 504 plan? What, what authority uh, brings us a 504 plan? So 504 plans are actually governed by federal law from it's from Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. Um, and the law says that no otherwise qualified individual with a disability shall solely by reason of their disability be excluded from the participation in or be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So it broadly applies to any program that receives federal financial assistance. So the public school system is, is one of those programs. What does that mean that, that they can't be denied solely based on disability? That means that if because of their disability, there's some reason they can't access the, the school building or their education, the school has to provide an accommodation for them to be able to do that. So actually, um, a good example of this would be a, a child who is sight impaired who needs the assistance of a seeing eye dog. The school would not be permitted to deny them access to having their dog with them or their service animal be, if they need that animal to you know, get from class to class and, and be able to be in the school building to access their education. Are there other times a 504 would be appropriate? Absolutely. There are tons of different examples. I'll give you another one for a disability that's more um, invisible to the eye. So you mentioned um, ADD or ADHD. If a child has ADHD and has trouble, you know, maybe they have trouble remembering their pencil. This is an example that my colleague Dina always brings up. Um, it, an accommodation that might be available under a 504 plan is that the teacher could tape the pencil with a string to the desk for all the different workstations that they need to go to. Now, are 504 plans something that are permanent? Once once you enter a 504 plan, that's going to be applicable through your whole education. How do these work and how often are they reviewed? They can be permanent if a stu student's need is there for the entire duration of their educational career. And they're typically reviewed annually. If there is a need that arises or the current accommodations aren't doing what they need to, you know, the child's still having issues accessing their education, it can be modified sooner or reviewed sooner. And are there temporary impairments or temporary things that uh, someone may be going through that, that they would qualify for a 504 plan, but it would only be for a, a short period of time? Absolutely. Um, for instance, if a child experiences like a concussion or something that's temporary in nature, um, but they need a few accommodations um, or, you know, they broke their leg. Uh, that could be something that's temporary in nature. Another example would be a pregnant student. So that person can be accommodated through a 504 plan. 
Now, is there a requirement of some specific diagnosis or anything like that? No, there just must be a, there can be a diagnosis, but as long as the county school district knows or suspects that the student has a disability and they need an accommodation, they are required to provide that accommodation. So is the county, is the school system responsible for determining this or do parents need to notify the school system if there's something going on? So either either way, so if a parent or guardian knows that the student has this disability and is having issues, they can notify the student. It can also be the school district, so a teacher, counselor, or some other related staff member, they can also identify the student. Now, some of the things that we've talked about uh, in our in our recent podcast was timelines that they have that the school system is required to do certain things within certain periods of time. Are those applicable to 504 plans as well? So there aren't any definite timelines that are required by a 504 plan. Um, there are, it needs to be done as soon as I think that student is identified within probably a reasonable amount of time, but there are no defined timelines that it, that it has to be written or completed. I, I think the SAT process, there are more timelines associated with that. Does a 504 plan have to be in writing? Not explicitly. It 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 is best practices to have it in writing because the federal regulations do require that um, records be kept when a child needs accommodations um, and, and what the school has been doing to address those. And it since 504 plans are, you know, there is no form for them. They're, unlike IEPs, the state has a standard form for an IEP. There is no such thing as a 504 plan. Um, they do have, the state of West Virginia does have draft documents that school districts can use and schools can also develop their own, you know, 504 forms, uh, but the accommodations do need to be specific to the needs of the child. Now, we talk uh, about 504 plans, and then you talk about these things called IEPs. Let's start with, we bathe in acronyms as attorneys, and especially here at Legal Aid of West Virginia. Um, What is an IEP? An IEP is an individualized education plan. So that's what IEP stands for. Going into a little bit more detail on what that actually means is it's a plan of specially designed instruction. Specially designed instruction means adapting the content, methodology, or delivery of instruction to a child who, and and an IEP is different from a 504 plan in that um, it's, there are a lot more specific things that need to be in that IEP. There are timelines associated with IEPs, and there's two requirements that would qualify a student for an IEP. First, a a child must meet a specific definition of a disability. There are 13 different disabilities that a student can be eligible under, and then the student must also need special education due to their disability. You say there's 13 disabilities. That's the only things that apply are these 13 listed things. Just give us an idea of, don't list all 13 of them, but what are some of the things that you'd see on this list? Sure. So when a school is considering qualifying a student for for an IEP, they list out all these 13 different disabilities. So a couple are autism, emotional disturbance, um, or it could be something like a specific learning disability. So 
they have to go through the checklist and there's certain requirements for each of these disabilities and a child has to meet the requirements for each of those disabilities. A more general, one of the, the listed ones is called other health impairment. So that is kind of like um, a broader term and a, a student with ADHD would be able to qualify for an IEP under other health impairment. Also, anxiety is not listed as one of these disabilities, but it, a child could have anxiety and need special education and could qualify under that other health impairment qualification too. Now, I think one of the things that, that you've noted in, in our prior conversations, some things of that nature, one of the big differences between the IEP and the 504, the 504 offers accommodations, which would be things that you would change to help that person to succeed. Whereas an IEP, I mean, it's a complete plan for that child, right? Yes. And what's different between a 504 plan and an IEP is that it is specialized instruction. So again, it has to be to the needs of that child, but that means that the actual you know, instruction is being altered in some way to make it accessible for that child due to their disability. When this IEP is is put in place, so the school, t talk us through that. We talked in the last uh, podcast about how the, there'll be a determination whether the child qualifies for special education services, and they'll have a, that starts with a SAT plan, um, and then the SAT team will meet and determine if the child is eligible for special education services. And if they are, then they may put in place an IEP. First of all, let me start with, do I understand that process first? Yes, that's normally how the process goes. Um, however, if, you know, that if there is a, if the child does have a disability and they know right away that the child will qualify for an IEP, it's not mandated that they go through the SAP process. So if it's obvious that the child needs needs an IEP, they don't have to go through that whole process. And then when they have, there's a meeting that the parents would be invited to with the school, um, and they may talk then if they, in a situation like where you're talking about, where they, they're pretty sure this child's going to qualify, or even after they've done a review and they realize the child will qualify, they may have the eligibility meeting and then the IEP team meeting right together, or do they have to have separate meetings on separate days? Technically, they should be two separate meetings, but because there is a required notice period. Um, and, and so a lot of times there's an eligibility meeting and then an IEP meeting following that. However, if they have everyone at the eligibility meeting that needs to be there to create the IEP, the parent can waive notice. So that every time in the step of an IEP process, a parent should receive what's called prior written notice. And that's, um, you know, the school must document what their intended course of action is and provide that notice to a parent within so many days based on what stage of the process they're in. Now, when we have a meeting with the parents to talk about the individualized education plan, who's generally at that meeting and who's required to be at that meeting? As I said before, IEPs are a lot more, or the IEP process is a lot more specific about who must be at the table. So according to the law, the IEP team must consist of the parent or if, if the student is has already turned 18, that adult student, um, a general education teacher of that student, a special education teacher of that student or provider. So if, for example, the student is receiving speech 
services that speech language pathologists should be at the meeting. And then a representative of the school district who is a decision maker for the district. So that could be the special education director, um, a principal or an assistant principal. Also, if there are any evaluations being reviewed at that IEP meeting, the, there should be someone qualified to interpret those evaluation results. And then if there's someone else with specialized knowledge or expertise regarding the child, they should also be in attendance and the student when appropriate. So if the student's a little bit older and they're talking about, you know, a lot of times it can be beneficial for the child to be there. So what would be included in this IEP plan? Um, whenever everybody gets together, they talk about things, what might you put into an IEP plan? So an IEP, like I said before, there is a form um, and the state has now computer software where the IEP team can go through and, and fill out all the different parts. Uh, so those parts include present levels of academic achievement and functional performance. So their most recent test scores or any evaluation results would be listed in that section. Um, and then a, a big part is the goals and objectives for the student. And those should be related to the areas of need of the child. There should always be at least one goal that is marked critical. If the student is a certain age, there has to be transition services in the IEP. So once they re reach a certain age, there has to be like a career interest inventory done and plans for when the child's going to be graduating. Some other things in the IEP, um, if there's any accommodations for statewide testing, also um, least restrictive environment considerations and placement. So placement is what environment is the student going to be receiving their education in? So those are some of the pieces of what a plan would actually contain. So when you talk about statewide testing accommodations, this doesn't mean that the student doesn't have to take the test generally, does it? No, the student should be doing some sort of statewide testing. Normally, for most students, that would be the, no the normal statewide testing that every other student is going through, uh, and they would just have some accommodations. So maybe they need the passages read aloud for them, or maybe they need extra time to complete that assessment. So if I've never been to a, an IEP meeting and I'm a parent and I get called to an IEP meeting, what are some things that I might have in the back of my mind that might be available to, to my student that, that you commonly see with IEPs? It's really dependent on what the child needs. Uh, that's the are that you always need to keep in your mind when you're going through the IEP process. What does my child need to be able to access their education? Um, so it could be anything from being placed in a co-taught classroom. So that might be a classroom where there's a regular education teacher and a special education teacher. If the child has the need for it, it could be a one-on-one -on -one aid. It could be something like preferential seating. It could be extended time on assignments or tests or modified assignments or tests. Sometimes it could mean the child is not in the general education environment and instead are in a resource room or they're pulled out for certain subjects for a smaller class size. An IEP can also contain related services. So if the child needs counseling or physical therapy or occupational therapy, or maybe they need help with social skills. So that's something that 
that they could be receiving through an IEP. One of the things that we talk about in, in any special education situation is the least restrictive environment. You noted some of these times students may be pulled out for individual individualized training that they may require. But what does it mean when we talk about putting a student in the least restrictive environment? It should be the goal of every school district, and it legally is required of them to place the student in an environment where they are educated with their non-disabled peers to the maximum extent possible. So they, you know, if they can be in the general education environment with some assistance and accommodations, that would be the goal. If not, they may need to be pulled out for some classes. Um, so if they need special education in their core classes like reading and math, Maybe that means they are pulled out for those classes, but then for their electives, like maybe art or music, they are in a classroom with their non-disabled peers. Well, there'll be times that a, a child may be pulled out to receive specific services and then and then sent back to the general education. So I guess what I'm saying is, could a child spend most of their time in general education and maybe get pulled out for 30 minutes or an hour or something like that? Is that a possibility? Absolutely. Now, when you have this IEP team meeting, if you as a parent come in with some ideas as to what you think might help your child educate, maybe the school district will have some other ideas that you may not have thought of and they may offer some services that, that you hadn't even considered. How does, how does this whole plan come into play? So the goal of an IEP team meeting is for everyone to be able to come to a consensus. So it, the IEP meeting is supposed to be a communication vehicle between the parents and the and the school district. They should be seen as equal participants. So obviously the parent has some expertise. This is their child that they've raised since potentially birth or you know, if they're an adopted child, but they still have a lot of history with this child. They see them every day at home. Um, and then the school also, they have expertise. You know, Teachers have training and experience teaching and any related professionals. So all of these different areas of expertise, you know, each individual can talk about what what they see with the child and some some different techniques that might be beneficial to the child. Um, and hopefully this can all come together and, and everyone can make a decision together. So consensus is kind of a big fancy word, to be honest with you. What does it mean by what do you mean by consensus? It's. A consensus would be that everyone is in general agreement about what should be in that IEP. So what happens when, when there isn't a general agreement? If the IEP team cannot reach a consensus, if everyone can't come to a general agreement, then the district representative on the IEP team must make that decision. So that's the principal or the special education director or the assistant principal or someone that has that decision-making authority on behalf of the school district. If that happens, then the school is required to provide that prior written notice to the parents um, and kind of explain why they're making the decision they're making. And what if a parent doesn't agree with that? If the parent doesn't agree with the school district's decision, they can exercise their right to a due process hearing. So, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in uh, in a subsequent, in, a, in our next podcast. Um, 
Let's talk, though, about um, other things that, that you see sometimes in the special education setting, which is where a, maybe a student's behaviors are a distraction in the classroom or they're not conducive to that child receiving an education. The, the, the child's behaviors are keeping them from getting an appropriate education. What steps might a district take if the child has certain behaviors? That's a really great question, Clint. And actually, the IEP form asks the question on one of the first couple of pages that says, does the behavior of the student impede their learning or the learning of others? If the school district checks that box, they are required to determine what supports may be necessary to address that student's behavior. Um, so a behavior intervention plan is, that's a term for a, a plan that can help address the student's behavior. Usually before you implement a functional, or before you implement a behavior intervention plan, um, the school should conduct a functional behavior assessment. And that's an assessment that is done to look at the student's behavior and it should be done by someone qualified to conduct that best practices is someone that is what is called a board certified behavior analyst. And that person goes and and they do a few things. They can review school records, especially a student's discipline record or their attendance record. And then they would also do observations of that student. And best practices, again, is to observe that student in multiple environments. So maybe they go and observe the student in a class where they do well or they like the teacher uh, and then maybe they would go observe the student in a class where they don't do well or they tend to have behaviors if the student has issues with behavior on the school bus that's a place that the behavior analyst should go and and observe the student and the goal of this observation is to identify what are the antecedents? What is going on before the student has a behavior? What actually happens when the student is having that behavior? And what are the consequences? What happens after the behavior occurs? A behavior intervention plan should try and replace those problem behaviors with different behaviors that are, are less disruptive and a, a better alternative for that to happen. Trisha, are these plans designed as punishment for poor behavior? Absolutely not. And like, what, poor behavior is, I don't know, that's like an interesting word is, you know, I think a more descriptive word might be disruptive behavior or difficult behavior. Um, they, but this, this plan is a tool for the school to use to try and address these behaviors. A lot of times students have these behaviors and they are a result of their disability. So a student with ADHD, a common behavior that they might have is that they can't sit still during class or they need to get up and walk around during class. That's not a child trying to misbehave that is a manifestation of that child's disability. That is a result of the student's disability. So this a behavior plan can help the student learn how to address these, you know, the, the inattention or like the, the feeling that they need to go and, and be uh, moving around. Now, these behavioral intervention plans, then they become a part of the IEP. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, they are part of the IEP, so they can be they will be attached to the IEP. And when the IEP is finalized and, and it's all in writing, um, 
what what legal effect does that have as a lawyer? Does that does that have any kind of is it a legally binding contract? Um, how how would you describe the IEP once it's finalized? Yes, I guess it's a contract um, where the school is required to provide the services and accommodations that are listed in that. And if they are not, then the parent has the right to challenge what's going on and, and they, they can file a due process complaint to try and make sure the school is or a different type of co- complaint. They don't they could also file a state complaint if the school is not following the IEP as it's written. We talked a little bit earlier about times that the behavior is disruptive not only to the students learning but also to others in the classroom. If that is so extreme that there's no way that the school district can stop that for various reasons, are there options to have education happen outside of the classroom? There are. um, Really, that should be a last resort. Um, When we were talking about placement, you know, I, I suggested there were a few different options for placement, and it's a continuum. General education environment, 100% of the time, is that would be the preference. Um, so you you really don't want to have to put place the child outside of school. And there are, you know, I would argue there are very few times when an out-of-school placement is appropriate for a child. So if someone, I don't know, let's say they had a, a car accident and they're not able to to leave the medical facility, then that, that would qualify under what we talked about earlier. Would that be a 504? That's a, it depends. Um, and, and that would be, that's, so for a student that has a medical reason for why they're not be, they're not able to be educated inside of the school building, but it's, you know, that would be um, homebound instruction. So, and that's, that's more of um, a temporary condition and that would be more appropriate under homebound instruction, which there is a state policy that governs that. And that does require a, a medical diagnosis or and, and it requires a doctor's notes. So if you are counseling a parent who just comes in and they find out they have a meeting with the school and they're they're not even sure what section of these codes are applicable and, and, and what the meeting is going to be about, what advice do you give to parents when in that situation? Make sure that you have a list of questions before the meeting, uh, maybe figure out what some of the things that you think the child needs are before you go in to the meeting and, and make sure that you bring a notebook so that you can take notes and, and keep track of what's going on um, and, and make sure that you are ready to present you know, your concerns and what your ideas for your child are. Well, Tricia, thank you for taking the time to visit with us today. I think you've presented some very good information for us, particularly for people who are in this situation. I appreciate you taking the time. No problem. It's been a pleasure, Clint. Historically, there has been an unfair stigma attached with special education services. It's time we think about this differently. If you've seen a picture of me, you know that I wear prescription eyeglasses. have since I was five years old. Nobody has ever suggested that I should have to attend class or take a test without my prescription eyeglasses. Now, not all students wear eyeglasses, and nobody would suggest mandatory eyeglasses. Special education programs are no different. A special ed program should devise a plan that meets a student's needs so that they can receive an appropriate education and be successful in a learning environment. As a parent, you'll advocate for your child. 
For additional resources, visit LegalAidWV.org. This has been a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.